And if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 22, as we continue our study now in the uh, life, the last days even, of our Lord Jesus, from his tears of agony, the Garden of Gethsemane, to his triumphal ascension, even through the gates of heaven. If you're visiting with us, again, let me, let me welcome you to Redeemer. My name is Ted Wenger. I'd love to meet you after the service. Thank you so much for coming. At Redeemer, we believe the Bible is God's Word, and it is filled with good news or gospel for people. And so uh, every week we study this word. Last week we uh, looked at uh, the tears of agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tonight we see his betrayal and his arrest. So we're in Luke chapter 22 verses 47 to 15 uh, through 53. And I want to say this one last word. If friends have ever betrayed you, or if followers have ever misunderstood and undermined you, or if enemies, the people who hated you, have plotted against you, then you can sympathize with Jesus, and Jesus sympathizes with you. And we're going to see that tonight in Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 47. Let me invite you to hear the word of God. And while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Amen. This is God's word. May he teach us its truth. Let's look to him in prayer. And Father in heaven, help us, we pray, to understand your word as it is. We pray that we would know Jesus truly and see him for his glory. Show us that glory. Speak to our hearts and grant that these next words would not be uh, words of human wisdom, but would be attended with power by your spirit in our hearts cut our hearts with your word for your glory and for our good. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the betrayal of Jesus and unrest uh, and his arrest unfolds, 
I want you to remember that just prior to this, Jesus had been praying at night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was in great agony and distress. He's been wrestling with the Father's will. In fact, he says, a father, if, it, if there can be any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's the last thing he's just prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's asked for a cup to be removed from him if there is any other way for people to be saved. What is that cup? As we saw last week, it's the cup of God's wrath, which Jesus will drink so that we can receive the cup of blessing as he drinks the cup that we deserve. So Jesus has been up all night praying this, wrestling with God the Father's will about this. Great drops of sweat have fallen off his body. He has been in soul agony, weary, dehydrated. His disciples couldn't even stay awake to encourage him or to pray for him. He was all alone before the Father facing what is to come, contemplating that cup of wrath. Yet notice immediately as a crowd comes up with clubs and swords and as a betrayer from his own disciples comes to betray him. Notice how remarkably calm Jesus is and how in control he is in the midst of this betrayal. He doesn't lash out. He has tremendous presence of mind. He's thinking clearly. He knows what is about to happen. He allows it to happen to himself And he is in complete command of this situation, allowing himself to be taken. We saw last week that he went to that garden, knowing his betrayer knew exactly where he would be on the night of this betrayal. Judas here intends to betray him. His disciples intend to rescue him. And the leaders of Israel intend to shut down his ministry. But Jesus intends to go to the cross. And he will go there. And he is in remarkable clarity of mind here. Nothing can stand in his way of drinking the cup of wrath from the Father. That his people, all who trust in him, might drink from the cup of blessing. So it's an amazing thing. A friend of mine was reading, you know, these memes that pop up everywhere. Well, if you have Facebook, you see them everywhere nowadays. Uh, A friend posted this, surround yourself with people who get it. Unsurprisingly, she received uh, quite a bit of positive encouragement from others. I mean, it makes life easier when the people around us get it, (laughs) when they get it like we get it, when they're like-minded with us, when they have the same goals as us, when they encourage us down the same path. But in this scene in Jesus' life, his last words and actions before his arrest, Jesus is surrounded by people who don't get it. They have no earthly idea what he's really about to do. Not Judas, not the elders of Israel, and not even his disciples. Why? Because he came to redeem people who don't get it. People who have never been like-minded with God about the essential things. And that's why we need him. And this is what he came for. And so I want to highlight three things in this passage tonight with you. I want to highlight three things. There are three vignettes or three conversations he has with three different groups of people. Verses 47 to 48. I want you to see that he's betrayed with a kiss. 
Then in verses 49 to 51, I want you to see that he heals an enemy's injury. And then in verses 52 to 53, he permits darkness its power. He's betrayed with a kiss. He heals his own enemy's injury. And he permits darkness its power. Those three things. In the first place, he's betrayed with a kiss. Jesus, as we said, has been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's late at night. Suddenly a mob has arrived with clubs and swords. And who is leading that mob? It's one of his own disciples. It's Judas. The crowd, this crowd, didn't know for sure where Jesus would be, but Judas did. And in the dark of night, they wouldn't have known for sure which one was Jesus, but Judas certainly would. And Judas approaches him to give the kiss. It's the signal that this is the one to arrest. It was a common way of people expressing their affection and friendship with one another. It would not have been unusual for men to kiss one another, the kiss of friendship, but it is entirely false on Judas's part. He is a traitor here. This is a man, you may remember, who Jesus chose after a night of prayer to be among his inner circle of 12 disciples. He has lived with Jesus and walked with Jesus. He has seen Jesus uh, out on a boat in a storm and calmed that storm with just a word, peace, be still. He has seen Jesus restore a, a dead girl to her father. He has seen Jesus heal a man with a withered hand, give sight to the blind, feed 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and two fish. He's seen all these things and he's heard Jesus time and again. He's heard the parable of the prodigal son, how the father loves the prodigal. He's heard uh, about the promise of the forgiveness of sins, about the the hope of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting and in the kingdom which is his, which is coming. He's heard these things. He's seen these things. And yet he says to Jesus, your friendship isn't worth it to me. And for 30 pieces of silver, we know he sold Jesus out. But Jesus here isn't fooled by Judas. Notice his response to Judas is a question. Verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? What's Jesus doing? Well, notice what he's not doing in the first place. Again, remarkable calmness. He's not screaming How dare you? How dare you, Judas? How dare you do this to me? That's not what he's doing here. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is acting like the great physician that he is. He is asking Judas a probing question to disturb his conscience about what he's doing. It's designed to make Judas realize his own wickedness and the terrible thing he's doing And the terrible danger in which he has placed his own soul. I mean, look at Jesus' words. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Really, Judas, he's saying, are you going to do it this way? Are you going to pretend to be my friend and intimate with me? 
And this is how you're going to betray me, Judas. Really? Don't you realize how awful this is? And that is always a mercy when God troubles our conscience. And the great physician is good at doing that. On the last day, when Judas stands before God in heaven, if, if there was a conversation that began with, with Judas saying, but, but I didn't understand, then we, we might imagine God Almighty saying to him, my loving and merciful son, the very last words he spoke to you were designed to wake you up to the danger of your soul, and you hardened your heart against him. That is a warning then to us all. Because the only thing standing here between the love and mercy of Jesus and Judas is not Jesus' willingness to be loving and merciful to him, but it is Judas' own hard heart. All day long, the Bible says, God holds out his hands to a stubborn and obstinate people. And all day long, it is ingrained in us to be stiff-necked and say no, but by the grace of God. And Judas is among those who say no, and he would not repent. May the Lord give us tender hearts. May the Lord give us hearts that are open to this physician of souls. May we not harden our hearts against the spirit who convicts us of sin and who troubles our conscience. Judas would have none of it. Judas went through with it. So Judas pretends affection and friendship, but it's false. And Jesus suffers betrayal. And one final point of application. In a way, then, we can say that Jesus' sufferings would not have been complete without this betrayal. We can say, how can Jesus sympathize with us in our sufferings if he himself has not suffered the closest betrayal? And we can say he has suffered that. And so he can sympathize with you if you have found yourself to be stabbed in the back by one you have trusted and loved. That's the first thing. He's betrayed with a kiss. And he can sympathize with you. The second thing is this. Jesus heals an enemy's injury. Verses 49 to 51. He heals with his own hand. When his disciple has caused the hurt. Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what was going to follow, they said, maybe they saw the crowd was getting edgy. Maybe they noticed that they had come to arrest Jesus. But the disciple said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Now what we know is they only had two swords among them. And there's just 12 of them. There's a whole mob and crowd. But one of them strikes the servant of the high priest, his and his ear comes off. In John 18, you learn that this was Peter and that the name of the servant of the high priest was Malchus. The disciples ask, Lord, shall we strike? But they don't wait for an answer to hear what Jesus will say. Peter doesn't. He just pulls out his sword and strikes. He has become wise in his own eyes. 
He doesn't wait for the Lord's answer. He, he may have had, we certainly believe he had the best of intentions. He was a true friend of Jesus. He had promised at one point, Lord, I will never deny you. I'm willing to die for you, Lord. I'm willing to die with you, Lord. Let's fight these people. And he takes out his sword. Best intentioned and completely wrong. And Jesus is saying uh, here, uh, well, Peter is saying, Jesus, your arrest is not a good thing. And Jesus is saying to Peter, my arrest is exactly what I intend. My kingdom is not of this world. It will not be established by the sword. It should not be established by the sword. I came not to kill, but to be killed. My kingdom will be established by my death, not by the death of my enemies. Calvin here has, I think, a wonderful probing insight for all of us he rebukes the followers of christ for being so unlike christ when he says it is evident that we are much more courageous and ready for fighting than for bearing the cross but jesus was ready to bear the cross we don't dear friends help christ's cause by hurting christ's enemies Peter misunderstood. And so, Jesus says, in verse 51, no more of this. <laughs> and he touches the ear and he makes it well. He heals him. I think I told uh, some of you recently about the time that I thought I had made a, a, what I thought for me an incredibly bad decision to transfer colleges between my, my freshman and sophomore years. Even though I wanted to go to the place I was going, I, I thought I was... Uh, outside the will of God, I was uh, immature as a Christian, I was very insecure as a Christian, and I, I thought uh, that I'd done this terrible thing and with great error and judgment, and that it could never be remedied, <laughs> that no good could ever come of this, that I was forever outside the will of God from now on, and then a, a Christian friend came along and he said, well, do you remember the story of Peter striking at the head of the servant of the high priest and Chopping away his ear. And what does Jesus do? Well, he just reaches up and touches the man's ear and heals it completely. Jesus can turn even our mistakes into occasions to display his glory, which is just what he does here. He makes his people's misjudgments magnify his wisdom and his power and his mercy. He can bring good out of even the evil that we do. And Jesus does so here. And so it is the last miracle that Jesus performs before his crucifixion. He does it with his own hand. It is, it is the healing of a man who came out to arrest him and see him crucified. What mercy and grace this is. But this is so important that he, that he do this thing, that he heal this man. Why? Well, on the one hand, it's going to protect Peter hopefully, and it did, from being arrested. You know, it's interesting that it's only John who tells us the name Peter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give us that name. And folks will point out, I think rightly so, that it's not till late uh, when John is written compared to the other Gospels. And it may just be that nobody else told us it was Peter so that they wouldn't get Peter in trouble over the next couple of decades when he's carrying out his ministry. But towards the end, we get the word 
And so what Jesus has done does protect Peter in a way, but it also protects Jesus' own innocence. You know that they wanted to put him to death. The Jews wanted him kill, killed, and they, and they wanted to declare him guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be the Messiah. And of course they did, but the Jews didn't have the right to kill anybody, but they knew they could get the Romans to do it if they told the Romans that this man's an insurrectionist, this man's a violent revolutionary. And so Jesus, to protect his own innocence here, heals a man, and he cannot be accused of leading a rebellion. Jesus himself heals people. He doesn't hurt people. He commands violence to stop, not to begin. He's not an insurrectionist. He's never led any violent action in his life. He's innocent of this, and so he heals Malchus. And this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Just pause on these two points that we've already covered. Here, right before he's arrested, to a man who is betraying him, like a physician of souls, he troubles his conscience, and there is love and mercy behind that question. And here, to a man who has come to see him crucified, there is love and mercy in his hand of healing. Let none of us say, no matter who you are and what you have done, how deep that hole goes in depravity. Let none of you say you are beyond the love and mercy of Jesus. But there's one final scene here. He turns to the chief priests. He turns to the officers of the temple. He turns to the elders who have all come out against him. And he permits darkness its power for a time. He allows the powers of darkness to have their way with him. For he knows that this is their hour. And he has been called to this suffering. First he rebukes them. But then he submits to them. Notice verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Here again, he declares his own innocence. He he knows they can't refute him on this point. He is no robber and he knows that they know that. And what's the evidence for that? Verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay your hands on me. You don't think I'm a robber. You don't think I'm a threat. (laughs) But of course, he knows that they're up to no good and they want to do it under the cover of darkness because evil likes darkness. It wants to hide itself. They don't want to get in trouble with all the people who do like Jesus, so they come out in secrecy. They come outside the city and they are exposed. Just by that very brief question, Jesus exposes that they are guilty but that he is innocent. He will, in fact, give himself the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And then he rebukes them, and having rebuked them, he submits to them. And he allows them to take him. Verse 53, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It is, he says, the power of darkness, the powers of darkness working through all these religious leaders of Israel. He says... But there is no light in you. You are not carrying out the good will of God. You are carrying out the designs of the enemy of our souls. You are carrying out Satan's own dark desires. Here is what he's saying. It is your hour. And this hour is allowed to you to have your will against 
me, and he gives them time to do it. Satan is permitted then to do his worst, as had been promised to Adam and Eve when they first rebelled in Genesis 3.15. There was a promise that a male child would come who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan, but Satan, that snake, would bruise his heel. And, and Jesus is saying, and now is the hour for Satan to bruise my heel. And he is permitted by Jesus to do what he's going to do. But Jesus is in complete control here, even in this dark hour. He says to him, this is your hour. You've chosen the cover of darkness, and this is the power of darkness at work in you. But Jesus is trusting in the Father. He knows that the Father is in control. And the only reason they're able to take him from this garden is because Jesus has wrestled with his Father about the Father's will. And he has assented to this hour. He has said, I will go. If my father wanted to stop this, he could stop this. In the other Gospels, he says, I could call down legions of angels against you all and put an end to this thing right here. But I have come to this garden to submit to the will of my father, and I will submit to the powers of darkness for this hour. All of the things that seem like they are victories then for Satan, including Judas and his kiss, are actually fulfilling the promises and purposes of God for his own son to suffer on our behalf. He could have stopped it with a word, but it would not have accomplished our salvation for him to do so. And I just want you to see there the willingness of Jesus to submit to this evil. If there was any other way for you and I to be redeemed from the powers of darkness, to be released from the power of Satan, from the power of our own evil and its deserved punishment, to be released even from the wrath of God, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. We talked about that last week. But if there was any other way, Jesus has already asked the Father, and the Father has said, no, go. And do this thing. And he is willing to suffer to see it done. But notice that this power is for a period of time. A definite duration. It is but an hour and it is a limited time. It is but an hour. And in a short time, darkness will give way to light. And the Son of Man, the Son of God, will rise from the dead and the light of the world will be put on display in all his glory. And so he is betrayed, but he is faithful. They came to fight, but he is the Prince of Peace. Peter hurts a man, but Jesus heals a man. They say he's guilty, but he's innocent. They are malicious, but he is harmless. They walk in darkness, but he is the light of the world. And at this table, as we come to this table, may we remember, may we remember who Jesus is to all who trust in him. Let us remember that he is a friend to sinners. John Newton, the pastor, Amazing Grace, was saying, let us love and sing and wonder. He wrote a hymn we don't sing, but it says this, one 
there is above all others, well deserves the name of friend. His is love beyond a brother's, costly, free, and knows no end. They who once his kindness prove, find it everlasting love. Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us, though we treat him thus. Though for good we render ill, he accounts us brethren still. You can trust him. He is trustworthy. He's the friend of sinners like us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We pray that we would know your love and mercy and how wide and long and high and deep this is. Rescue us, save us, change us, and take us home to glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.